Hey, so if you uh, if you like what I'm doing here, go on to iTunes and give this this bad boy a five star review. It doesn't have to be anything crazy, you know. Just you know, have fun with it, really. But it really helps uh, to do a five star review because that like helps the algorithms, and then people who like Harry Potter can search for it and find it, and then get really mad at me for ruining their childhood. <laughs> Chapter 4, this one's called At Flourish and Blots. At Flourish and Blots. Which sounds like a charming cafe serving like tapas style new American dishes. Farm to table, hopefully. Bottomless mimosas for brunch, you know, one of those places. Two hour limit though. You don't want to get too sloppy. You got the rest of the day ahead of you. You don't you want to spend your, your weekend all blotto on cheap champagne. Wake up with a headache, you know. Uh, I have no idea where I'm going with this. So the first sentence is really bad again. This is a new thing the narrator is doing. They were not this bad before, but now all of the first sentences are really bad. Just just opening up the chapter with the most poorly crafted sentence of all time. Life at the borough was as different as possible from life in Privet Drive. So like, first of all, I have to supply my own knowledge of how different life can be, I guess. It was as different as possible, whatever the fuck that means. But then there's also life at the borough being compared to life in Privet Drive. And I am fully prepared to admit that the idiom in Privet Drive might only sound bad to me because I'm an American. Although it seems like if this, even if this were correct, wouldn't you want to use the same idiomatic phrase when comparing the two? I should really just stop questioning this shit. It doesn't do me any good. So then, by way of explicating the contrast, the narrator has this anecdote where Harry looks in the mirror, and the mirror is like, Tuck your shirt in, Scruffy. So first of all, this sounds so fucking obnoxious. Like, you can't even just be relaxing around your house without some fucking wall decoration insulting your appearance. Like, this mirror is just going to dunk on you at all times. Like, it's like the hosts of what not to wear decided to form a police state in your house. And then the narrator goes into Harry's interior life for a bit, and says that even weirder than the surveillance mirrors and the asshole ghouls is that Harry was in a house where people liked him. And it's still weird how every time they dip into Harry's thoughts, it's always, like, bubbling with just the remnants of mistreatment and abuse, but then according to his actions, he's like the most normal, well-adjusted kid ever. Obviously, different people react to different home environments differently, but the bulk of the evidence suggests that his first instinct would be to, like, be severely distrustful of all these new people who've brought him into his home, rather than just being like, oh, what a crazy curiosity that these people all like me. And then just, like, taking that at face value. That's weird. Keep in mind that this was the dude who was tortured and abused by his family for years, and decided that he preferred them to that old woman who, like, fed him and had cats. So then, the, his flip to just like, oh, hey, they like me, that's, that's cool, isn't even in keeping with his own psychological profile as established in the first book. And I'm only on the first paragraph, so this, this is, might be a long one. And so then we get some more description of Ron's little sister Ginny, 
who is like so nervous about Harry Potter that she can't even function like a normal person. So she's like spilling her food and shit all the time and like, okay, fine. But wouldn't this start to go away after a while, seeing as how Harry is now living with these people? So like, obviously this isn't just random nonsense. The narrator is trying to set us up for this girl factoring into the story at some point. Likely as some sort of love interest to Harry, uh, or there's going to be at least some sort of bond there. And this goes right back to the idea of, like, our bonds are innate rather than forged through context and circumstances in history. So it's like this perfect little neoliberal fantasy that strips all meaning of our lives away from its, like, social and historical context and places it in this platonic realm of the eternal. There's no social baggage or contingencies to work through, no contested terrain for these people to navigate, nothing to prepare you, in other words, for how relationships actually work. It's just like, someone is madly in love with you for some reason, and in this case, Harry, the reason is basically that you're a celebrity. Like, Ginny isn't enamored of his kindness or his charm or his stability or anything like that. She's into him because he's a celebrity. It says it very clearly, which is to say she is into her own image of him. Which is, of course, bound up with this weird, uncritical exaltation of celebrity and celebrity culture that this book seems to love to do. Keep in mind, both Harry and Dumbledore, our two main protagonists, are both celebrities in the wizard world. Like, Dumbledore literally has a playing card like he's a fucking sports hero. So I'm kind of curious to see where this goes. This stuff was all set up in the first book and handled so non-critically that I'm not really holding my breath for anything particularly interesting. Uh, but maybe having this Ginny and Harry relationship getting into those ideas would be interesting. You know, how celebrity isn't a good foundation for a relationship. I mean, any sort of relationship. And then what it means to put certain expectations on certain people, and how those people might not be able to meet those expectations, which then, you know, can then cause resentment and disappointment and all that. And the story actually has an opportunity here to explore those themes and maybe subvert my own expectations a little, and maybe really dig into what it means to care about someone. So who knows? And then Ron's mom gives Harry and Ron letters from Hogwarts, and there's some, like, more lampshading going on, like, oh, Dumbledore already knows you're here. He's so on top of things. Here's your letter, Harry. It's like, yeah, he's so on top of things, except for the decade of Harry's solitary confinement that Dumbledore did jack shit about. Other than that. And so the letter has, like, this list of books that, that everybody needs to get, and the list is literally just, like, one book that's, like, standard boring book of wizard shit for second-year wizards, and then a whole fuckton of books that are, like, breaking up with the banshees, gadding around the ghouls, Holidays with hags, voyages with vampires, zoning out with zombies, snorting up with Snorlaxes. I don't, I don't remember. So they're, but they're all by the same author? And so this is like the fucking Sue Grafton of wizards, I guess. Also, this doesn't seem like a very diverse syllabus. Apparently Hogwarts second year is just one giant seminar. And then Fred makes a casual misogynistic joke about how only women read Sue Grafton. That's weird. Also, I don't remember which one Fred is. And then Harry finds out that Ginny, the shy girl, is also going to Hogwarts. And then he says, like, two things to her, and she immediately blushes and sticks her elbow in the butter dish. Ha, wonderful slapstick there. Although, in fairness, I'm shitting on this for some reason, but it's actually a marked improvement. We're learning about Ginny through descriptions of Ginny's actions that we can then assign meaning to, rather than the book one thing where the narrator would just be like, Snape was very mean in some unspecified way. And then they get a letter from Bossy Girl, 
And just in case you were wondering, she's back to bossy girl because her letter is super bossy. It's like, I hope you didn't do anything illegal. Like, what are you, a fucking cop? And their letter is like, oh, hey, your stupid owl is about to die. So why don't you get a new owl? Anyway, I'm super busy with schoolwork. I hope you're well. Peace. And then they go and they practice Quidditch. Harry and Ron and all the brothers practice Quidditch. And we're told once again that Harry's broom is, and I'm quoting here, easily the best broom. I had the best broom, made Dumbledore pay for it. I'm like, what? And then the narrator is like, Ron's broom is old and limp and shitty because it's a, because it's his dick. And then the weasels all worry about money for some reason. Even though it seems like Mr. Weasel has, like, a really good job working for the city, like, making laws or whatever. So apparently the the wizard world is, like, just as ruthless and shitty to ordinary working folk as our world is. Or maybe the weasels just have, like, 18 kids and they're trying to send them all to insanely fancy private schools. Or I guess I should say to the only insanely fancy private school in this universe. And so it seems like, much like boarding schools in the U.S., the real purpose of Hogwarts is to transfuse power through your family lines while keeping up the illusion that there's some semblance of meritocracy to the whole process. But of course, unless you're in the ruling class, this process is designed to siphon as much money out of you as possible, so Hogwarts is basically an institution designed to both redistribute wealth upwards and to keep it concentrated at the top, not unlike actual private schools. But does the narrator morally condemn this or criticize this in any way? No, not at all. And so they have to buy their school supplies, and there's, there's this, this shit that the, that the weasel family has called flu powder, and they keep it in a flower pot, and you basically throw it in a fire and say where you want to go, and then you, you magically go there. And Harry doesn't know any of this, and they're like, well, then how did you get to Diagon Alley in the fucking first place? And Harry's like, uh, I took the subway? And they're all, like, shocked at this, like, what a pleb. And so then he does the flu powder trick, and... I think there's supposed to be, like, some rule about, like, not eating immediately before doing this, because, like, he gets all, like, shitty and sick, and his, his breakfast starts to come up, and then he breaks his glasses, and he kind of, like, coughs on the word, and so he breaks his glasses, and he's all covered in soot, and he doesn't know where the fuck he is. This seems like a really dumb way to travel, just saying. And then he finds out he's gone to some, like, creepy-ass dungeon with, like, human bones and weird medieval weapons on the walls and shit, and I'm like, fuck yeah. He's landed in some weird-ass pit, and you'll have to, like, fight other prisoners in some sort of gladiatorial combat. Here we go. But then it turns out it's just, like, a weird shop. And then he's trying to leave the place, but he runs into Dracula Kid. And he's like, I don't want Dracula Kid to make fun of my family's finances. And so he runs and hides in the cupboard so that Dracula Kid doesn't see him. And I'm sure that'll work. So Dracula Kid walks in, but he's there with, he's there with his father, luscious Dracula Man. And we've heard about this dude excited to finally meet him and so then the dracula family are like talking to the shop owner or first they're talking to each other and of course they're talking about harry potter's dick or broom or whatever and dracula kid is like everyone thinks harry's so smart and so cool and he has such a big broomstick and then luscious dracula man is like you complain about harry potter all the time i'm starting to wonder if you have some sort of latent envious desire and he's like also you shouldn't talk about harry potter because everyone thinks he's great and they all think we're evil pieces of shit, so maybe just cool out a little bit. And so then what's happening is that Luscious Dracula Man is trying to sell off some of his shit because I guess the Ministry of Magic, which is like apparently the wizard Pro, 
is conducting raids, or it's like Wizard Ice, maybe? I don't know what the fuck this shit is, but they're conducting raids. It might be like the fucking, you know, House Un-American Activities Committee or something. And then the shopkeeper is like, oh, but surely a great man like Luscious Dracula Man wouldn't be raided. And Luscious Dracula Man is like, you know, you'd think. But I have a feeling Mr. Ron Weasley's dad is behind this. Which, okay, so it just happens that basically the only two wizard boys we know who aren't Harry or the weird sad kid who lost his toad or the other two droogs that are Dracula Kid's friends, they both just happen to have parents who are engaged in some sort of political intrigue struggle with each other. Like, that's a very convenient coincidence. Also, why the fuck is Mr. Weasel Guy so poor? If he's, like, literally writing some of those powerful laws in the wizard world and, like, overseeing some sort of surveillance state. I'm not one to think that capitalism apportions its resources in anything resembling a fair way, but that dude really needs to ask for a raise. Like, hi, I'm one of the most powerful lawmakers in the universe, but my kids can't afford their school books? So then luscious Dracula man is like, yo, so it might be kind of sketchy if I have these deadly poisons at my house when the wizard ice raids bust through my doors. And so then they're like, yeah... And then they're both like, we're, so this is Luscious Dracula Man and the shopkeeper. They're both like, we're both fascists and we care about wizard blood and we dislike all the social changes that have made us feel scared and precarious over the past few decades. And then Luscious Dracula Man and his Dracula kid's son leave. And then Harry Potter leaves the cupboard and he runs into a witch carrying a tray of fingernails because this is a normal book. And then he runs into Hagrid in the most convenient fucking accident ever, apparently the wizard world has like seven people in total. And so Hagrid tells Harry that he's in the bad part of town called Nocturne Alley. Like, what, did the wizards fucking redline or something? Why is there a bad part of wizard town? Like, oh yes, this, this is where the factory used to be, but it closed up when they moved to Miz wizard Mexico. And so then Harry and Hagrid are just randomly walking, and they run into Bossy Girl... Because, again, there are seven people in this world. I honestly go to, like, the same six places in my neighborhood all the time. And I go months without running into people I know. So this is just a very strange concept to me. And so then Bossy Girl meets up with Hagrid and Harry. And then all the Ron Weasel kids, all, all those people, all meet up. And there, it's all just one big happy party. And then Mr. Weasel Guy is like, oh, Harry, your glasses are broken. And he gives them, like, a tap, and the glasses are fixed instantly. Like, hey, buddy, why not just tap some fucking LASIK surgery into Harry's eyes? I love how wizard magic is, like, able to erase memories or completely freeze people or immediately fix broken objects, but it is no match for nearsightedness. And then Hagrid leaves, and Harry is like, Hey, guess who I ran into in the bad part of town? Dracula Kid and Luscious Dracula Man. And Mr. Weasel is like, Oh, I bet Luscious Dracula Man is selling off his stuff because he's scared of me and the insane privacy violations my organization commits on the reg. And Mom is all like, Be careful, my dude, that family is trouble. And then they walk into the anti-Semitic goblin bank. And who is in the bank but Bossy Girl's parents, who I recall from the last chapter, or from the last book, are dentists? But more importantly, we learn that they're muggles? Or maybe we learned that already and I just didn't catch it. And so anyway, they're fucking dirty muggles. And so of course, Mr. Weasel Guy, who has a total muggle fetish, is like, hey, let's hang out. 
Also, I don't really like meeting all these kids' parents. This is really dumb. Like, who gives a shit about these parents? And so they get their gold and shit or whatever. And then apparently Flourish and Blots is actually the name of the place where you get your school books. So no new American cuisine, no mimosas. But Sue Grafton is there and she's signing books. And there's a huge crowd for it. And it's all middle-aged wizard women. And so then the author is actually a dude. This Sue Grafton is actually a dude. And he's described as this like jaunty dude with dazzling white teeth. And everyone is all fawning over Mr. Sue Grafton. But he's like... Is that Harry Potter? Because remember, Harry's chief characteristic is that he's a beloved celebrity. And so then everyone goes wild for Harry, and then Sue Grafton announces that he will be teaching defense of the dark arts at Hogwarts, and everyone claps, and he's like one of those dudes who puts all his work on the sil- on his own syllabus, you know, that, that guy. For some reason, I'm picturing this dude as Hugh Grant's character from Paddington 2, Phoenix Buchanan. Everyone should watch that movie, by the way. Hugh Grant, Sally Hawkins, Brendan Gleeson. Really star-studded cast. Great movie. Tight script. And so then Sue Grafton gives Harry all the books for free, and Harry, like, immediately turns and gives them to Ginny? But this makes no fucking sense, because Ginny is a first-year student, and the Lockhart books were all on the second-year syllabus. What the fuck? So either the first-year students have the same book list as the second-year students, and Harry somehow knows this even though he never once fucking looked at Ginny's list, and can't she can't even fucking talk to him without pouring some sort of food substance all over herself. Or, Harry's like, hey, you take these random books that aren't on your syllabus while I buy my own. So either way, it's dumb as hell. And then, of course, shitty Dracula kid is there, and he's like, oh, look at famous Harry Potter. And Ginny, of all people, is like, go fuck yourself, crappy Dracula. And side note, uh, one time I was at Amoeba Records in Hollywood, and I was looking through the punk Seven Inches, And there was this album by a band I'd never heard of called Crappy Dracula. And the cover had this, like, line drawing of a snowman fighting a scarecrow. And it looked absolutely ridiculous. And so, of course, I bought it immediately. And the songs were fucking awful. And I'm pretty sure I still have that album somewhere. So check them out, Crappy Dracula. Uh, You're going to hate it. It's not good. So in honor of that band, I'm going to start calling the Dracula kid Crappy Dracula, I think. So then Crappy Dracula is like, oh, you have a girlfriend? And then Ron comes over, and we get the worst simile in the book so far. Here it is. Ready for it? Oh, it's you, said Ron, looking at Crappy Dracula as if he were something unpleasant on the sole of his shoe. There it is. As if he were something unpleasant on the sole of his shoe. So first of all, both of the pronouns in this sentence are ambiguous. Is Ron looking at Crappy Dracula as if he, Ron, is something unpleasant on the sole of his, Ron's shoe? Or is Ron looking at Crappy Dracula as if Crappy Dracula is something unpleasant on the sole of Crappy Dracula's shoe? Or is Ron looking at Crappy Dracula as if Crappy Dracula is something unpleasant on the sole of Ron's shoe? Or perhaps Ron is looking at Crappy Dracula as if Ron is something unpleasant on the sole of Crappy Dracula's shoe. Also, something unpleasant? Like, how fucking lazy is that? The other's like, fuck it, I don't even want to think of something. Just think of your own something unpleasant. Anything unpleasant will do. A noisy neighbor? Nasty cough, the Armenian genocide, doesn't matter as long as it's unpleasant, it's fine. Also, if something is on the sole of your shoe, you can't look at it. It's on the sole of your shoe. Was he like standing on one foot and lifting crappy Dracula awkwardly? Because that's what you'd have to do if you want to look at something unpleasant or otherwise on the sole of your shoe. 
Yep, so I don't think that it's going to get worse than that. I don't think it can. Right now, that is number one bad simile with a bullet. And so then, of course, in keeping with his character, crappy Dracula is like, Oh, you're buying things, Ron? Good luck with that. What with your parents' relatively low income bracket and all. So, like, crappy Dracula has pivoted from, Oh, look at this cool celebrity, Harry Potter, what a celebrity, to... Oh, look at Ron, you're not as rich as I am. Like, he, he has, like, this very, like, defined set of parameters, and if you go above or below that in his mind, he gets really angry. And then the fathers come over, and they literally get in a fight. And it's seriously just like, I'm luscious Dracula man, and I'm racist. And Ron's dad is like, well, I'm Ron's dad, and I take an active interest in other cultures. Let's fight about it. And then they fight, and Hagrid comes over and breaks it up, and I'll just say that the paragraph describing the aftermath of the fight needs a serious editor. There's three men, and the author refers to all of them as he in ways that are just utterly confusing. Like, you can figure it out from context, but the writing is really muddled and bad. Honestly, in terms of sentence construction, this book is probably worse than the first. He's a very flawed facility with the language in these early chapters, for sure. It's, like, barely readable. And so then everybody goes home, and there's some, like, domestic tension between the weasel parents or whatever and that's it ultimately this chapter uh was one of those chapters where i started there were like things that i wanted to get excited about but then couldn't and i really don't care about the uh the parents i don't care about the parents if this book is going to become this like you know upstairs downstairs style story with the parents and their fucking political bullshit and it like you know, comes to bear on the Hogwarts shit, that's going to be really boring. I hope that doesn't happen. 